Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, Lord, for the fact that you are indeed the one who is highly exalted. And you have given us the privilege and the blessing of, Lord, worshiping you and coming to you with our songs and our gifts. Lord, there's nothing that we can give back to you that you have not first given to us. And yet what you desire is hearts that are um, genuine and sincere in worship to you. You want our praises and our adoration. You want hearts that are truly worshipful. And so, Lord, we pray that today, even as we hear your word, we know that this is also an act of worship, the preaching and the hearing and the application of your word. I pray that you would give us soft and tender hearts to listen to your word and what you would have to say to us from Colossians 2. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turning your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. And I want to begin our time this morning by reading Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Colossians 2, 6 through 15. And if you're able to stand with me, please stand for the reading of God's Word. If you're not able to stand, it's okay. Just follow uh, there as you sit down uh, the reading, okay? Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore... As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him, in Christ... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him." May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You can have a seat. Well, the title of our message, this is part two of the message that we began uh, began last week. Christ, our sufficiency. Christ, our sufficiency. And we saw last week, we began looking at this passage, verses 8 through 15 in particular, and Paul's warning to the Colossian believers not to succumb to false teaching that is leading them away from Christ. In fact, if you look at the end of verse 8, he says, Rather than according to Christ, and not according to Christ, whatever the specific nature of this worldly philosophy in verse 8 that Paul is is talking about here and addressing specifically in these verses, whatever its specific nature, this teaching boasted of a form of godliness, but in reality, it was counterfeit. It was counterfeit. If you look at verse 16, He says this, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. 
Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance, literally the body, belongs to Christ. The body belongs to Christ. Look at verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These matters, which uh, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So, whatever the specific nature of this philosophy, the fact of the matter is, is that it was leading them away from Christ. It was contrary to Christ, who is the substance. It had the appearance of wisdom. But it was not truly wisdom, for in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so in contrast to this worldly philosophy in verse 8, Paul wants them to realize that Christ is sufficient, so that they may trust Him and depend upon Him, so that, we, so that they may look upon Christ as, as, as a source of all that they need, the one who can provide for all of those needs. And so he points them to Christ's sufficiency. And we said last week that he does so by way of a contrast. He contrasts worldly philosophy, we might say worldly thinking, in verse 8, with the all-sufficient Christ in verses 9 through 15. Because they needed to be reminded of the fact that Christ was all that they needed. And beloved, can I encourage you and I this morning as well? 2,000 years later, so do we. We need to be reminded of the fact that Christ is sufficient, that Christ is all that we need. Like the Colossians, many of us have given our lives to Christ. Like the Colossians, we would say that we are Christians, many of us, that we are followers of Christ. But with the passing of time, there are challenges to really living as if Christ is sufficient for us, as if Christ is all that we need. When we experience a spiritual need, or when you experience a spiritual need, ask yourself, do you run to Christ and to His Word in the midst of that spiritual need? Or do you run to things such as philosophy, worldly thinking? Or do you run to things such as psychology, which boasts that Christ can't be sufficient, or His Word, that the Bible is not sufficient or adequate to address the the deeper needs of man, but psychologists can get to those deeper things as the Bible cannot. Is that what you run toward in your spiritual need? Or do you run to the counsel of the wicked in the form of talk shows or politics? Talk shows like Dr. Phil... More and more Christians, I read a stat the other day, are listening to talk shows like that. Running away as if the Bible is not sufficient to address their spiritual deep needs. And they're running to these talk shows. That is succumbing to the counsel of the wicked. What about when you face difficult circumstances beyond your control? Do you run to Christ for perspective and help? Or do you run away from your circumstances, relying upon yourself, not thinking that Jesus, by His Spirit, can actually help you, that the Word can actually guide you and direct you to live well under those circumstances? When you need wisdom in troubled relationships, be they in the church, 
Be they in your marriage. Be they in parenting. Be they with coworkers. Be they in your neighborhood. When you face those troubling relationships, do you come to Christ and look to His Word for guidance to be able to confront those situations head on? Or do you run away from difficult relationships? Instead of dealing with them head on, relying upon the Spirit of God to help you. When you are having a difficult time financially, or you've lost your job, who do you run to? Do you run to Christ for help? To Christ's Word for guidance in living well in the midst of that particular trial? Or do you respond with anxiety or worry, cultivating a sort of atheistic mindset as if God were not aware of those trials that you're going through, even in the material realm? See, beloved, it's one thing to... Uh, profess that Christ is sufficient. It is quite another thing to live it out, right? All of these things show that in our Christian experience, Christ is not always our all in all. That we are seeking to solve our problems, not depending upon the Lord, but trusting in ourselves, looking to ourselves in self-dependence. And I guess that if Christ was a normal person like ourselves, we might be able to explain that and get away with that kind of lifestyle. I guess that if Christ was the person that most people in our culture portray Him to be, a weak, feeble, impotent, oblivious person, then I guess we can get away with our lethargy and response to Christ and not trusting in Him and depending upon Him for everything in life. But the fact of the matter is, is that Scripture portrays Jesus much different, right? Much different. Back in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, uh, uh, Paul was expounding upon the supremacy and the preeminence of Christ, pointing to the Colossians, don't succumb to these things because of the fact that Jesus is not small. He is very big and very majestic and very glorious he's all powerful preeminent and you can trust him he can be your all sufficient redeemer and this is the picture of Christ that again is precisely the picture that Paul wants to point these colossians to once again in verses 8 through 15 that in contrast to philosophy of verse 8 Jesus is much much better he's all sufficient And the way that he shows us this truth, as I mentioned, is by way of a contrast between this worldly philosophy or thinking and Christ's sufficiency that we as Christians would turn from worldly thinking, not succumb to these things as well, and that we would run to Christ for all that we need, beloved. Now last week we saw point number one, the danger of worldly philosophy in verse 8. Today, we're going to focus on verses 9 through 15, and we want to see the assurance of Christ's sufficiency. The assurance of Christ's sufficiency. In contrast to empty, deceptive philosophy in verse 8, Paul wants to see them look to Christ for all that they need. And so he's going to paint this beautiful picture portrait of Christ yet again, that they would see the blessings that they have in Christ. Look at verse 9. It begins with the word for or because in Him. In contrast, or in other words, the reason we should continually beware, be on the lookout, that we may not be led away from Christ, is because of the fact that He is much, much better than empty philosophy, than worldly philosophy. Now, sometimes the best way to combat error is not to study the error extensively, right? Right? 
The best way to combat error is to compare error to the truth. To be convinced and solidify and crystallize, crystallize the truth in our lives. And in this case, crystallize and solidify the truth concerning Christ and the benefits found in Christ. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here in verses 9 through 15. Here in these verses, verses 9 through 15, are four assuring blessings about Christ that remind us that He's all-sufficient. So these are sort of four sub-points under your second main, main point, okay? Four blessings that we find in Christ that we would not succumb to worldly thinking. Blessing number one, we are complete in Christ. We are complete in Christ in verses 9 and 10. Look at verse 9. For in Him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. We've already seen that word, fullness, right? Before. In chapter 1, in verse 19, it says that it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, in the Son of God. That word fullness means totality, completeness, fullness of something. Like a glass of water filled up to its brim is full, lacks nothing, doesn't need more liquid. That's the picture here. Jesus is fully God in essence. That's what it means here. That Christ in His humanity, which is His bodily form, that's what bodily form refers to, His humanity. That in His humanity, Jesus fully God in His essence. Everything that God is, Jesus is in His essence. Jesus is not partially God. Jesus is not half God. He is the fullness of God, according to verse 9. The fullness of God. And this flew in the face of the present false teachers. If you remember, for according to them, Jesus too was just another spirit being somewhere at near the top of a great pyramid, maybe the closest to the top of the pyramid, with God at the top of this pyramid. Presumably as the greatest of spiritual beings, prominent but not preeminent or supreme, great but certainly not God Himself. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't give in to empty philosophy for or because in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells, present tense, continually dwells in bodily form. Don't give in to this. That word dwells there pictures the Old Testament, Testament tabernacle where God dwelt. Now Paul says God's fullness continually dwells in the Son of God in Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is the God-man. From the moment of His conception to now, as He sits at the right hand of the Father, beloved, Jesus is the God-man. Many people think that His incarnation, that He divested Himself of His deity in becoming human. No. It is better to think of the Son of God adding humanity to His deity. He never ceased to be God. And He is still God today. Amen? He's still God today. Now what does that have to do with us? Look at verse 10. And in Him, you have been made complete or full. And He is the head over all rule and authority. Literally, verse 10 reads like this. And in Christ, you have been made complete or full, who is the head over all rule and authority. Note the play on words in verses 9 and 10. Look at verse 9. 
For in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And then verse 10, And in Him you have been made full or complete. And He is the head over all rule and authority. Paul is saying, Christ who is fully God in His essence, verse 9, lacks nothing in His self-sufficiency, in turn makes you full and complete who are in Christ. You lack nothing. In Him, you are whole. And how does this apply to us? This doesn't apply to everybody, right? Notice verse 10. He says, and in Him. This applies to us if we are in Him. That is in union with Christ that we will see in a few minutes. In union with Him. When you are in relationship with Christ, you stand full or complete in Him. The implication is that apart from Jesus, if you are not in Him, if you have not turned from your sins and trusted Christ, then you are not in Him. You are incomplete. You are broken. You are not whole. Only until you make a commitment to turn from your sins, to repent from your sins, and trust in Christ as Savior of your soul. And God transforms you from the inside out. Can you be complete? This beautiful truth for us as believers. That we are full or complete in union with Christ is not new. John 1.16 says this. For of His fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. For of Christ's fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 19, praying for the Ephesian Christians, prays for them like this, that they would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Filled up to all the fullness of God. In Christ, beloved, we are made complete. We are made full. And no one... Not even the false teachers could challenge the sufficiency of Christ. For notice what he says in the rest of verse 10. That he is the head over all rule and authority. According to Colossians 1.16 and chapter 2 verse 15, rule and authority refers to angelic or demonic beings. We will see later on how there's an element of this fault in the false teaching, this, this element of the worship of spiritual beings, the worship of, of angels. Paul is saying here, don't give in to worldly philosophy that gets you into the spiritual realm to tap into some spiritual dimension to find completeness. If you are in union with Christ, you are complete in Him who is fully God and who is fully in supreme authority over the whole demonic realm, is what he's saying. Don't tap into that. You don't need to. You're complete in Christ. He's the unrivaled, supreme Lord of the universe. I was pondering this truth this week, that I am complete in Christ. And I was thinking, you know, the more that I come to grips with who Christ is, the more I treasure Him. Because I'm getting to know my Savior and the, the infinite, infinite treasures found in Him. And the more that I treasure Christ because I know Him through His Word, the more that I don't want to run to worldly pursuits or philosophies or thinking that leads me away from Jesus. When you come to grips with who Christ is, all the more, beloved, then then there's nothing, nothing that will attract us. Everything else in life pales in comparison to King Jesus. 
Everything does. In chapter 2, verse 3, Paul said that in Christ are all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden. In Him. In Christ is forgiveness. In Christ is peace. In Christ is hope. In Christ is, is, is hope for the future, for our eternal well-being. In Christ is truth, right? Truth. That which is real and reliable and trustworthy. We are complete in Him because we have the truth that He has given us. And as He said, the truth will set you free when you know it, right? He has given us that freedom. We have the truth in Jesus. In contrast to a world full of lies, beloved. Full of lies. You know, the other day I was watching a soccer game with my kids. And we typically skip through the, the commercials. But we ended up watching one or two of those commercials. And it's amazing. Just in a 30 second commercial. The kinds of things that were heralded as things that might, will lead to your happiness. Drink a lot of beer because that leads to happiness. And everybody's smiling. Nobody shows how all of those people end up vomiting after that party, right? They're not going to show you that. They're not going to show you that. Or you can have multiple partners in that party because after all, you need to try on as many people as you can so that you make sure you meet the right person that you're going to marry, right? Like, so if they're a pair of shoes. All of these things are, are thrown at us as things that will satisfy us. Sex outside of marriage, pursuing the American dream of comfort, of consumerism, of materialism. You have to have the latest gadgets to be happy, to be, to feel complete. Beloved, none of those things will lead to completeness, right? None of those things will. Only Jesus can complete you. He's the only one that can set you free from captivity to sin. He's the only one that is sufficient. We're complete in Him. What a wonderful, assuring blessing that in contrast to the empty philosophy that these Colossian believers were succumbing to, at least paying attention to to some capacity or another, Jesus can complete them. They don't need to look anywhere else. He is the fullness of God who is the head over all rule and authority. They don't need to be enamored by spiritual beings or worshiping angels because Jesus is right there and they are complete in Him. Secondly, we are in union with Christ. Not only are we, are we complete in Christ, but we are in union with Christ. That's a second blessing. Much better than worldly philosophy or anything the world has to offer. We are in union with Christ. This is one of the most beautiful, beautiful doctrines of our salvation, beloved. That we are in union with the Lord. And here it is shown to us by these prepositional phrases in verses 11 and 12 and throughout the whole passage. I want to show you this. Union with Christ. Verse 10. Notice this. And in Him, in Him, you have been made complete. Verse 11. And in Him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Verse 12. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. Verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. All of those little prepositional phrases, in Him, with Him, point to the believer's union with Christ. Our intimate relationship that we have with Christ, that we are organically and beautifully connected to Christ. There's no other religion in the world, beloved, that, that teaches this. 
that, that shows us this beautiful, intimate relationship that we can have with our God. No other religion offers that. We are connected to our great Savior. And this union with Christ is so hugely important here. For in verses 11 through 12, Paul highlights that it is in connection with Christ or in union with Christ that we also, as He died, we died. As He was buried, we are buried. And as He resurrected, we are resurrected. This is pictured beautifully by what Paul references here in verses 11 through 12 as a circumcision of Christ. Look at verse 11. And in Him, in Christ, you were also circumcised. You know circumcision, right? Circumcision was a a ritual widely practiced throughout the ancient world. But for the Israelites, circumcision was a physical, external sign of the covenant between God and Israel that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 17. It was an external sign, a physical sign of that covenant between God and His people, Israel. His chosen, chosen nation. But look at this. Paul is talking about something different here in verse 11. It says, And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. He's not talking about a physical outward sign here. And what does this circumcision consist of? In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. Listen, even in the Old Testament, one thing was clear. From the very beginning, circumcision was a symbol of something deeper that God was after. God was after a heart circumcision, if you will. A spiritual surgery, if you will. This is why Moses... In Deuteronomy chapter 10, when he's, he's preaching to the, to the Israelites, they're getting ready to go into the promised land. He tells them in Deuteronomy 10.16, So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. You guys are getting ready to go into the promised land? Spiritually prepare yourself. Circumcise your hearts. See? Deeper inward reality he was pointing to. In Jeremiah Chapter 4 and verse 4, the prophet Jeremiah is warning the southern kingdom of impending judgment. And he says this to the southern kingdom, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah. Remove the foreskins of your heart. So it was a, a spiritual circumcision, not a physical one that shows that a person belongs to God. And this is the spiritual circumcision that Paul has in mind by the circumcision of Christ here in verses 11 and 12. That by that that supernatural working of God, we are in union with Christ. We We are dead with Christ. We are buried with Christ. And we rise from the dead spiritually with Christ. Based upon the transforming work that He's done in our own hearts. Now notice, what does this spiritual circumcision involve in verse 11? He says it involved the removal of the body of the flesh. Literally, in the removal of the body which consists of the flesh. That word removal there means a stripping off, as in taking off one's clothing. In this case, the stripping off of the body consists of the flesh. Now what is Paul talking about with the flesh? 
Is he referring to our physical body? He's not referring to the physical body. Otherwise, he would be agreeing with the false teachers who taught a, a form of dualism, that spirit is good and matter is evil, so therefore our bodies are evil, and salvation is found by escaping, escaping the incarceration of the body, the human spirit, and escaping the incarceration of that wicked human body. He's not teaching that here. He's talking about the old man, beloved. Unredeemed humanity has been crucified with Christ. I love how Pastor MacArthur puts it. Our unredeemed humanness is what is put to death, if you will. But continues to try to, to, to cause us to give in to sin. But we are no longer under the dominion of that principle, right? It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 6. That our old self was crucified with Him. Meaning that our old self has died with Christ. Has died with Christ. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In other words, the old man has died. I am no longer living for that old person anymore. That old person has died. And I am to walk in newness of life. Right? You know that that's your favorite verse, huh, Jane? Love that verse. That is my favorite verse too. Listen. In salvation, Christ has thoroughly removed the dominating power of sin over our lives, the old man. That is what happens in this beautiful union with Christ. It is what Paul refers to in Romans chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am, he says, who will set me free from the body of this death? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul knew. That in union with Christ, in relationship with Christ, he can be freed from sin's dominating force. So it is in union or connection with Christ that we've died. That's what, what Paul means here metaphorically by the circumcision of Christ. That we've been stripped of the power of sin over our lives. But notice in verse 12, we've also been buried and raised with Christ. Buried and raised with Christ. Look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism. He's not talking about water baptism here, by the way, right? He would not be chucking out one um, uh, external ritual circumcision and saying that baptism, water baptism, actually saves us. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about spirit baptism, by which we are put into the body of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. So we are, we are dead in Christ, in union with Christ. We are buried with Him in baptism. And we're also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God. All of those wonderful realities are all because of our connection, of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And it is all the working of God according to verse 12. In the working of God who raised Him from the dead. It's almost as if Paul is saying, Folks, this false teaching that is being promoted and propagated here, how is that any greater than the union and the connection and the relationship that you have with Jesus? That in Him there are these great spiritual realities and that in connection with Him, you too have died with Christ. You have been buried with Christ and you have been raised with Christ. Why would you sell that for something else? 
When you have this beautiful, intimate, love bond relationship with your Savior, and it is all the working of God, all the working of God. Now listen, I have never attended a funeral, never attended a funeral, where people may be weeping and talking to that corpse that's, that's laying there, and where I've never attended a funeral where, where that body actually responds to that stimuli. Have you? Never did, never have. And this morning, I was driving here to church, to the church building. And there were people already walking on the streets. And there were people driving in their cars at the uh, stoplights. And we may be tempted to forget about our former condition, forget about the fact that we too, uh, uh, before Christ, were spiritually dead. When we look at people, beloved, out on the streets, do you realize that people, even though they may have life externally, physically, they are spiritually dead? Spiritually dead. And that should evoke our compassion for them. That is who we were before. But Paul says here, in the working of God, he raised Jesus from the dead. And the implication is, we also were raised spiritually from the dead in union with Christ. What a beautiful, beautiful truth. And notice the spiritual transformation does not apply to all, right? He says in verse 12, through faith in the working of God. Through faith. This is how this can be applied to you. Some people boast of a great connection with God. It's, they have this me and God thing, right? He is my homie up in, in the sky. He is my buddy. He's my pal. He's my cosmic genie. You name it. People boast about a great connection with God. I'm here to tell you that unless you have turned from your sins and put your faith in Christ, surrendered your life, and put your faith in the only sacrifice for your sins, you are not in union with Jesus, and you don't have a God thing going on. Amen? This is through faith where you can experience this intimate union and love bond relationship with Jesus. And we know what that's like as believers, right? We know that we have that beautiful, beautiful connection with Jesus. We are in union with Him and a love bond relationship with Him. And this is precisely, beloved, what Paul doesn't want them to forget about. That they have this intimacy with Jesus by which they have, been, they have died with Christ, been buried with Christ, and raised up with Christ. The Colossians were focusing on external rituals and do's and don'ts and rules and regulations and so forth, so forth, and ceremonial washings and so forth, and spiritual beings that were nothing in comparison to Christ. And Paul says, no, no, no. All of those things are devoid of a relationship. Stay connected to Jesus. You are in union with Him, and you have experienced an inseparable spiritual union that you cannot experience by adherence to those things. That is what he's saying. Christianity is beautiful, beloved, because it is about a love bond relationship with Jesus, right? By which we are connected with Christ inseparably. Every other religion in the world seeks to seeks the performance of the individual worshiper. But biblical Christianity is about what Christ has done and not what I have done. It is about the righteousness of Christ reckoned, accounted to me. His perfect life, His death and His resurrection, in union with Him, that's been, that's been counted to, my, to me personally. Wrecking to my account. Credit it to me. And so Paul says, don't focus on these things when you have Jesus and He is the one in whom you are complete 
And He is the one in whom you are in union with. Thirdly, we are forgiven in Christ. Third blessing, we are forgiven in Christ. Look at verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions, And the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now he's pointing them back to remember where they were before. They were dead in their transgressions. Irresponsive to spiritual stimuli. And the uncircumcision of your flesh. Notice what God did. He made you alive together with Him. And what was the result of that that power by which God raised us together with Christ from spiritual death? having forgiven us all of our transgressions. Because of the work of God in our hearts and lives, beloved, in union with Christ, we find forgiveness, right? We've been forgiven of our transgressions. And notice the beautiful picture that he gives them here in verse 14 to highlight the beauty of of this forgiveness, this blessing that is found in the all-sufficient Christ. Verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. To highlight and remind the Colossians of the beautiful blessing and benefit of forgiveness, He gives them an an image here. An image. A certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. What is this? Excuse me. What is this that Paul is referring to here? It refers to an IOU. An IOU. A handwritten document acknowledging one's debt to another. It was a statement of what you owed with your signature on it. Agreeing to pay back what you owed as well. And maybe at times with a payment plan on there as to how you were going to repay that. That is what he's referring to here. And in the spiritual realm, beloved, listen. Before coming to Christ, we were indebted to God with an insurmountable debt that we could never pay, right? Never. Think, the video plays in our minds, does it not? Of what life was before Christ. Does the video play in your mind? The things that you did? The destructive actions that you performed? The way that you thought? Anti-God and anti-people? The people that you exploited? The people that you hurt? Does the video not keep playing, beloved? It plays all the time, doesn't it? And we have to be reminded of the forgiveness of God. All of those things, all of those things were an insurmountable debt that we could never, ever, ever pay. And notice the hostility of these charges against us in verse 14. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. In other words, all of these actions and wickedness and the record of those sins accused us, indicted us. There was no way that we can argue against the guilt of our sin on that certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. There was no way around it. We cannot work to earn it, to earn enough good works to to void that debt. There was nothing that we could do. We were hopeless. And what did God do? Look at verse 14. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Literally, that verb there, He has taken it out of the way, meaning He has erased it. He has wiped it clean. Not just partially, but completely erased it. You know what a good translation is? He has obliterated it. He has obliterated our sin, beloved. 
when you repented of your sins and you confessed to God that you are a sinner deserving of his punishment and you pleaded to God for his forgiveness by trust in Christ, he completely wiped the slate clean, obliterated your sin. Hallelujah. Now, it's not that he swept our sin under the rug, did he? Someone paid the price. There was no way that in God's holy and righteous character, he can let anyone get away with sin. He didn't sweep your sin under the rug. Forgiveness was not purchased for you by sweeping your sin under the rug. It came with a great price, right? Look at verse 14. It says that he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the what? To the cross. And who died on the cross? But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the fullness of God, the preeminent one, died on the cross. The Son of God died on the cross, beloved. Jesus paid it all, right? All to Him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He, what? Wiped it, washed it, white as snow. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Amen? Praise the Lord. That's not applicable to everyone. Again, what is necessary for you to be forgiven is that you take that IOU, and rather than deny the fact that you have committed sin and that you are not a sinner, you take that IOU and you sign your name on it and you say, I, Kempis, am a sinner deserving of death and hell and punishment. God, please transform my heart. Please forgive me by faith in Christ. That is what it takes for salvation to be applicable to you, for you to be forgiven of your sins, beloved. That you would sign that IOU and confess to God, say the same thing that God says about your sin that is an affront to His holy and righteous character, and realize that only by faith in Jesus Christ can you be forgiven. Listen, verses 13 to 14 have huge implications for our assurance, right? Our forgiveness. And, for, and it did for these Colossians as well. We must truly rest upon God's forgiveness. Many of us live with a constant sense of guilt. Constantly hitting ourselves in the head for our sins. And I'm not talking about the fact that if you are a believer this morning and you are living in unrepentant sin, that you somehow are going to experience the joy of your salvation. You simply won't until you confess your sin and you repent of your sin as a believer. And believers need to daily repent of their sins, right? I'm not talking about that. About feeling guilty over unrepentant sin. You should feel guilty over it. So that maybe it drives you to confess your sin and seek forgiveness. I'm talking about living with a sense of guilt over your past and your sins as if God did not forgive you. Or in the present, as if in Christ God can't continually forgive you. That the answer will always be yes in Christ as a believer. We need to remember that we've been completely forgiven in Christ, beloved. Isaiah 43 verse 25 says this, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. 
How is that accomplished in Christ by faith in Jesus? If God crushed and cursed His own Son on the cross, why would He not forgive us when His Son has taken the fullness of His wrath for our sins, beloved, if we have believed in Him? Why would He take that back? Think about it. If He went to the ultimate extent of crushing His own Son, why would He take His word back? He can't. Many of us want to add works to what God has already done for us. As if we were forgiven of our sins initially in salvation, but now we have to continue to do things uh, sort of as as a penance continually so that God may be okay with us and He can continue to forgive us. Because after all, Christ's righteousness wasn't adequate enough or sufficient. Many of us live that way. Remember, Christ's death and resurrection is final. And thus, by faith in Christ, your forgiveness is final, beloved. What a blessing. We don't need to give in to rituals or do's and don'ts, devoid or disconnected, detached to Christ and to His Word. No, no, no. We are forgiven in Christ, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, beloved. It is not about our performance. It is about what Christ has done, right? We are forgiven in Christ. What assuring blessings in contrast to worldly thinking. That we are complete in Christ. That we are in union with Christ. And that we have forgiveness in Christ. And fourthly, look at verse 15. We are conquerors in Christ. We are conquerors in Christ. Verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, he made a public display of them having triumphed over them through Him. Listen, not only did God obliterate the obstacle that stood between us and Himself, nailing it to the cross, but look at verse 15. He made a public display of them. Who? The demonic forces that in the past could use that record of debt against us. He disarmed them. It means to to strip off as one takes off an old garment. God disarmed the rulers and the authorities. They have no ultimate power or influence in the believer's life, beloved. None whatsoever. He has voided their power. And I love the next statement in verse 15. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. Having triumphed over them through Him. That's a beautiful picture there. It pictures a a victorious general leading his army in in victorious procession, triumphal procession through the particular town or city, along with his captives, showing off his victory. That is our King. He openly, openly, he has humiliated his enemies. He is victorious. Now remember, part of what the false teachers were claiming was the existence of these intermediary spirits ascending up to God. And Paul says, no, don't be deceived and enamored by these. On the cross of Christ, Christ has defeated them to such an extent that He made a public spectacle of them. You need not look to them for completeness. Completeness is found in Jesus alone. At the cross... Christ proclaimed victory over His enemies, beloved. Satan and His demonic forces. And we are conquerors in Him. And I was reading an article the other day of of a couple of believers that 
are giving in to this, this, this worship of spiritual beings. And they claim they profess to know Christ. And yet they're, they're giving in to, these, to this new movement of spiritual forces being so involved in the believer's life to, to gain some kind of deeper spiritual knowledge for them. No, no, no. Paul says, Christ has accomplished victory. We need not be enamored by spiritual forces. Christ has defeated them already. And he, we are awaiting the return of Christ to render the final blow, right? That's what we are awaiting for. Can I encourage us as well, beloved? Satan can no longer accuse us, right? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Neither Satan nor his demonic realm can accuse you or I if God has nailed all of those accusations to the cross. We are fully accepted by faith in his Son. Can I encourage us as well? Let's not live in fear of demons above God, right? The spiritual realm. I marvel at the fact that Christians think that demons can actually come in and dwell you as a believer. That can't happen. How is it that a believer can be indwelt by the Spirit of God and yet be indwelt by demonic forces? Right? That can't happen, beloved. The spiritual demonic realm has no power over the children of God. This does not mean that we should take it upon ourselves to be casting out demons. Right? Or to not be, to not be cautious about those things. But it means that we should not be following after any teaching that claims to have special power over the demonic realm. Let alone boast about this ourselves. We ought not to be doing that. Our weapon against the demonic realm is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, right? The gospel changes, the the gospel message changes lives in the hand of the Spirit of God, in the heart of a sinner, a spiritually dead person. That is our weapon, beloved, to proclaim the gospel, to share Christ, so that people may may be delivered from the demonic realm. Now listen, all of this that Paul has said about Christ from verses 9 through 15 has been for the purpose of contrasting what they have in Christ to what these false teachers are promoting. That they may realize the blessings that they have in Christ. The, the wonderful truths concerning His person and, and the wonderful benefits of being in union with Christ. That they would not succumb for counterfeits or settle for something lesser than the majestic, glorious King Jesus. That they would remember that they are complete in Him. That they are in union with Him. That they have been forgiven in Him. And that they are conquerors in Christ. He alone is sufficient. Are you here this morning looking for completeness outside of Christ? You simply won't find it. You won't. If you have not given your life to Christ, you will get to the end of your life having pursued everything that you ever wanted to pursue. As Solomon did, right? Solomon was given wisdom and yet he did not use that wisdom. He pursued every source, every every object of pleasure that he could pursue. And at the end of his life, he realized it was all vain for nothing. At the end of the day, he said, it's about fearing God and keeping His commandments. And we know that the only way to do that in a way that pleases God is by being in Christ, right? Having given our lives to the Lord. You won't find 
completeness outside of Christ, my friend? Are you claiming wisdom and knowledge apart from Christ? You're deceived. You're deceived. Wisdom and knowledge that does not lead to Christ is useless, vain, and empty. And that is what you are dwelling in. Only in Christ can you be made complete. For us who are believers, I want to ask us this morning, is Christ sufficient to you? Is He all that you need? Are you living that out, fleshing that out in your life? Is He the all-satisfying Savior of your soul? Or is He simply the Savior of your soul, but you need to add some things to your life? He's simply an add-on. You need psychology, you need philosophy, you need, you need the talk shows, you need to listen to politics, you need to be aware of what's out there, or is Jesus and His Word not sufficient? Be careful, beloved, with succumbing to worldly thinking that is counter to the knowledge of Christ. And my encourage us, let us strive not to exalt philosophies that don't point people to Christ. Let us not, let us not champion causes, philosophies, or educational methods, or family, or upbringing, all of those things. As if those things in and of themselves mean exalting Christ. We can fall into the danger of that in our conservative circles, beloved. Rather, in family, in education, in whatever pursuit, the purpose is to exalt Jesus, right? Not exalt the thing or the method or the structure. It's about exalting Christ and making much of Him. So let us be careful not to champion those mindsets, beloved, that lead people away from Christ rather than toward Him. Whereas philosophy deceives people, the gospel of Christ is true, right? Reliable, trustworthy, real. Whereas philosophy or worldly thinking is empty and devoid of spiritual value, the gospel is powerful, the gospel is life-transforming. Let us be committed to our King Jesus. Amen? Let me pray for us and then our brother Tim Adams is going to come up. Heavenly Father, help us to find and to be assured of the fact that we are complete in Christ. That in union with your Son, we have everything that we need. Not just forgiveness in a salvific way, Lord, but also in our sanctification. In the process of becoming more and more like Jesus, He is all that we need. Help us to be looking to Him and Your Word in the power of your Spirit. I pray that, Lord, we might realize that, Father, we have something that the world needs. And they need to hear the message of the Gospel of Christ. Help us to be proclaiming the, the truth of your Son, countering worldly philosophy, world religions that focus so much on human works and human performance, devoid of transformation, of heart change in Christ. Help us, Lord, to be committed to proclaiming a biblical gospel whereby we call people to turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus, knowing that you and you alone are the one that works in the hearts of people to bring about heart transformation. We ask you all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.